Hello, and welcome to Standing in the Stream, a podcast for and about creative people. I'm your host, John Lane. Today's show is a unique offering produced by sound artist and sound designer Tim Preble. For many years, Tim worked as a sound designer in the film industry. You can see his award-winning film credits on IMDb. Based in New Zealand, he runs Substation, a sound design studio, and created a large sound design library called Hiss and Aurora. Recently, he's been exploring making his own works using sound, photography, music, and more. When I first asked Tim to be on the show, he didn't want his own voice recorded, and after some exchanges, we arrived at a creative solution. Tim would produce this episode. So in a twist from my normal format, I sent him some recorded questions, and he invited his 10-year-old nieces, Alice Markwell and Maya Haydock, to join in on the conversation. So, Tim, Alice, Maya, welcome to the show. Hi, John, and thank you for the invite. Would you girls like to say hi? Hi, John. Hi, John. I read on your website, Tim, that you first began experimenting with sound as a six-year-old playing in the grain silos of your parents' farm. Can you talk a little bit about those formative experiences and the intrigue of sound in your early life? Well, Uncle Tim grew up on a farm in the middle of the South Island, so I think he grew up with a love for quiet and wide-open spaces. But he was about six years old when he discovered the grain silos on the farm. They would be empty until the harvest started, so they were like his own private echo chamber. If you jump up and down inside them, you can actually create thunder. You know, the thing about those grain silos was that they taught me that sound isn't passive. You can create sound, a bit like how you create music. But instead of playing the piano, I could play the empty grain silos. So a lot of my earliest memories are sound-based. your background training in the craft of sound recording and where did you learn it and how did you get started in sound design in film? Uncle Tim went to university to study electrical engineering but he was playing bass guitar in a band at the same time. And his band got an Arts Council grant to record an EP so I started to learn about music recording. But back then there was no way to actually earn a living from music. So one day he skipped lectures and sneaked off to a screening of Wim Wenders' new film, Wings of Desire. And that film changed him permanently. He decided to quit university and go to film school with the aim of becoming a sound effects editor. So I guess the idea of actually working with sound for a living developed over many years and I taught myself a lot simply through experimenting. Okay, here we go. but it was just when I finished film school that the first audio software was released. This is a year or two before Pro Tools even existed, and it was such a revelation being able to manipulate sound digitally. So I guess I've accumulated my skills. 
that the one aspect that is constant is that I've never stopped learning. Every project is like a whole new adventure. How would you describe your creative process? Time-consuming. Existential. Funny. Crazy. Asymmetrical. Well, it's probably all of those things and then some. But the common element is that all of my work is time-based. It occurs in real time and you have to live it in real time to experience it. One aspect of sound that really intrigues me relates to our perceptions, especially with regards to film. Our conscious minds are often focused on vision and speech. Meanwhile, sound can sneak around the back of our minds and alter how we interpret and feel about what we're seeing. But it often does it in a more stealthy way than actual music does. And that territory really interests me. What is the essential gear that you need to get started as a sound designer or a sound artist or maybe even a field recorder? Well, you need a way to record sound, so a recorder and microphones. And you need a way to edit and manipulate sound and to mix it together. But here's the thing. Nowadays, most people can have all those fairly easily. You can buy cheap handheld recorders and download an app or whatever, but it's actually the motivation and intent that matters the desire to experiment and pursue ideas and to develop a sensibility and an aesthetic for sound. That's what I think is the most essential aspect. Anyone can learn how, but why is a far more interesting thing to think about. Tim, you have extensive experience in the film industry and a number of credits on IMDb, as I mentioned in the intro, as both a sound designer and a supervising sound editor. I'm really curious to know about the collaborative process of filmmaking. So to get started with that, what is your relationship to the other members of the creative team? The first connection is with the director and the writer and the producer because it is their story and their vision. The picture editor is another very important collaborator because they evolve the story and shape of the film into its final form. And every picture editor is also a sound editor and a music editor. They are the first person on the film to start to see the film take shape on screen. So we like to work closely with the editors and provide temp sounds to them as soon as possible. The same applies to the composer. Back in the day, we never got to hear the score until the final mix, whereas nowadays we can get to hear their work in progress and we can preempt any problems. Within the actual sound team, it gets split between myself and a dialogue supervisor, the sound effects editors and the Foley team. I think the two most important aspects of collaboration are that everything matters, every little detail makes a contribution, but our work must be more than the sum of our parts and it's the work that goes into tying it all together that can be the most satisfying 
is it's like orchestrating an entire world of sound, but it's a world that is specific to that particular film. It all comes together in the final mix, and for the soundtrack that's where collaboration becomes all-encompassing. The re-recording mixes balance and shape all of our work so that it makes dramatic and emotional sense for the director. And in the end, everything we do has one top priority. It has to serve the narrative and the story. How do sound designers decide what to record? Is it a practical thing, like maybe you need a sound for a particular moment in a film? Or... Sometimes it's project-based. Sometimes it's making the most of opportunities that come up. But sometimes it's about pursuing a concept or a theme. For example, I recorded a big sound library which I called Entropy, and it started from this one simple sound. You know if you're cooking using a wok and you get it really, really hot, and if you drop one tiny drip of water into it, it makes the most fantastic fizzing sound. So I explored all sorts of ways of making sound with extreme heat or cold. I even tried capturing Doppler movement of sounds. For example, frying bacon and moving it across a hot fry pan. And I recorded the sounds that occur when you press metal onto dry ice. You know, I suspect this is true of every art form, but the deeper you get into it, the more you realise that it just gets deeper and deeper. My sound library has over 600,000 sounds in it, but I feel like I'm just scratching the surface of what's possible. And you mentioned that despite having a very large sound library that you like to record new sounds for each project. Could you take me through that process? Every film has its own voice or style, so it's important to spend time researching and exploring how sound might exist and function in the world of film. Sometimes it's purely practical. For example, we need all the sounds from a specific vehicle. Other times it's about locations. I worked on a film called Boy by Taika Waititi and I read in the script that one scene was set in a cornfield but by the time we worked on the film the corn would already have been harvested so I went on a mission to capture this field of corn and it was quite amazing. It was like an ocean, you could hear the wind travelling across the corn. So apart from getting the actual sounds, it also tends to be a process of discovery and learning. 
Lately, you've been able to focus more on your own creative practices as a sound artist. You mentioned to me a couple of artist residencies that you completed, and I think many artists find these kinds of experiences really inspiring to literally retreat, to get away from our daily lives in order to focus solely on the work of making art. How did your experiences at these residencies find their way into your work? Well, my brother thought it sounded like a nice idea for a holiday, but I worked harder during my two residencies than I ever have before. You've learned a lot from working in the film industries for 20 years. But I think you might have learned as much again during those two artist residencies. I think you might be right. I had really specific ideas and techniques I wanted to explore, and it was so great to have the time to explore them. But what was surprising was the things that I didn't plan. I came away from it with this clarity of vision that what matters is that you have to be prepared and do your research, but then be totally open to experience and new ideas. Some of the best new work I made during the residencies only came about because I specifically planned to go do something, and by being open and present I discovered something way better than my original preconceived idea. So Tim, let's talk a little bit about your creative process as a sound artist. What are some of your favorite techniques for manipulating sound? Everything sounds better slowed down and backwards. Slowing down sound often makes it heavier, but it can also reveal elements of the sound. This is a recording Tim made of a native bellbird. But when you slow it down, you can hear the melody much more clearly. So he sat down and worked out what notes the bellbird was singing. wrote a piece of music based on the bellbird's melody. When you reverse sound, it still feels real and organic, but it is harder to identify what you're actually hearing. first checked out uh, your various websites, I was really intrigued by your hiss and aurora sound library. You've got some really unusual and interesting sounds on there. Um, and in this collection, is it is it kind of an extension of your, I'm assuming, already extensive personal library? And uh, like, where do you find sounds or locations? Is it a process of trial and error? Tell me a little bit about that process. 
Many of the sounds Tim records for Hessner Raw are sounds he's wanted many times over the last 20 years of working in films. Other times it's based on a theme or a specific prop or an animal like seals. He went for a holiday during winter to a place called Nawi. It's quite remote, but it's also home to a big seal colony. So he recorded a whole library of seal vocal sounds. So I do a lot of research and thinking about interesting sounds. But the most satisfying aspect is when I hear the sounds used in projects. And those seal vocals have been in a number of films and TV shows and video game soundtracks. In 1937, John Cage wrote, I believe that the use of noise to make music will continue and increase until we reach a music produced through the use of electrical instruments, which will make available for music purposes any and all sounds that can be heard. So... When and how does the sound become music to you? Sound and music really exist in a continuum. And the boundary between the two is very flexible. And it's really the context that determines how we interpret sounds. But I love sound that exists on that boundary. Push it one way and it's definitely sound, but alter it a bit and its musical nature gets revealed to us. These are all technically sound effects, but it's not hard to hear their musical potential. Those last two were my washing machine and then a pneumatic forging hammer I recorded in a factory in Kawasaki near Tokyo. Your home of New Zealand is rich with diverse and beautiful landscapes and I wonder if you find living there to be inspiring or useful to your work with sound. New Zealand is definitely inspiring, the landscapes and the people. When you compare landmass, New Zealand is about two-thirds the size of Japan. But their population is 127 million, whereas ours is only 4 million. So it makes it far easier to find quiet locations for recording. But also being a small island nation means you can easily access a lot of different elements of nature. To drive across New Zealand only takes four or five hours, but in that time you would travel through so many different landscapes. There are many parts of New Zealand where if a dinosaur walked out onto the road, it wouldn't be that big a surprise. The forest and bush are so pristine and it's almost prehistoric. So, you've done a lot of recording over the years. What would be some of your favourite field recordings? One time Tim was recording down south and had just turned his recorder on when this whole tree of native wood pigeons took off. Thank <laughs> you.
And this is a gecko he recorded in Papua New Guinea. Another time I went to Samoa to work on a film and when I had a few days off I'd read about these birds, swifts, that live in caves and use echolocation. So I went on a mission to find them. We went deep down into this one cave and I set my gear up and my guide then went further into the cave and got the birds to fly past me. And last, to wrap up, I always like to get a little perspective on making a career as a creative person. So, Tim, do you have any advice for those who are trying to live and sustain a creative life? I think it's very important to be unstoppable. If you can access the tools you need, then no one can stop you. If that means having a day job or whatever, it doesn't matter as long as you can make time to keep learning and developing it. I think it's really important to also remember there are no shortcuts to anywhere worth going. If it's difficult or it takes a lot of time, then that's actually good because it means most people won't even bother. We're the people who really love what they do and do what they love that will persevere. So I think that's my best advice. Work hard to discover what it is that you love to do and then pursue it with a passion and be unstoppable. And that concludes this episode of Standing in the Stream, Conversations with Creatives. I'm your host, John Lane, and I'd like to extend a special thank you to Tim Preble for producing and designing this week's show, and thanks also to Alice and Maya for your vocal talents. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes and follow us on Stitcher Radio. As always, you can follow me on Twitter, at that John Lane. You can find the show links and show notes on my website, john-lane.com. 
and follow the show on Facebook. Simply search for Standing in the Stream. Thanks to Danny Clay for our theme music. You can find him online at dclaymusic.com. I'll be back next time for more conversations with creatives. Thanks for listening.